It's nice if my voice is louder. I feel like I have more authority. <clears throat> That's probably just comes from a sense of insecurity or something like that. But anyway, as you know, um, or as you've heard, it is it was my birthday this week, and so I'm 31 years old. And somebody asked me, "Do you feel your age? Do you feel like you're 31?" And I told them, "I actually do feel like I'm 31. <laughs> Maybe not so much in maturity, but I do feel like." I'm 31 in the sense of I have a baby now, and that just tends to tack on a few years of, um, yeah, I don't know what to call it, but there is a sense that I'm getting older. But uh, thank you very much for those of you who um, wished me a happy birthday and made the day special. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, the title for this afternoon's message uh, is called, Why Did David's Baby Have to Die?, and I don't know if you have flicked through the Old Testament, and every now and then there's these really unique stories about God's judgment and about things that happen, and it makes somebody ask the question, why Why did this happen, and how can you see God's love through uh, an act of, and in this particular story, there's a baby that basically is a recipient of God's judgment. And um, so what... What uh, Jinha and I decided to do was it'd be worth it to tackle a few of these stories. So today's going to be David's, uh, the story of David's baby. And uh, in the subsequent weeks, we're going to tackle a few other stories. And basically, um, we've been trying to theme our, our messages. And so for this week, um, we're actually going to cover, um, or for this month, we're going to cover a few uh, challenging texts and ideas. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to invite you to have uh, one more word of prayer with me as we as we start this message. and uh, So please bow your heads with me. Father God, uh, as we delve into uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and as we uh, talk about what happened in this story, I pray that there would be a clear understanding of you um, through, uh, through our discovery of your word. And I pray that in our time of discussion as well, that we would be able to really... Um, explore different ideas and gain a better sense of, of judgment. And so many times your character is portrayed in uh, such a unique way through judgment. And I just pray that as we look through a few verses that uh, you would you would um, enlighten us. So we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, today today's actual uh, message portion might be a bit um, concise. And so forgive me for the... Uh, Forgive me for not being able to uh, be able to share more with you today, but yeah, there are a few things that I've been kind of thinking through, and as I've been reading through Second Samuel chapters eleven and twelve, um, yeah, a few things have come to my mind, and I thought it'd be worth it to share with you. So, if you have your Bibles, and if you can turn with me to uh, the book of Second Samuel, and we're going to first start in chapter eleven, Second Samuel chapter eleven, and there's a story of David and Bathsheba as uh, it introduces uh, what happened between the two of them, it kind of gives some background to, to this story. And if you follow the book of First Samuel and Second Samuel, there's this journey that uh, David makes as a young shepherd boy to become the king of Israel. And it kind of culminates to this point. And as you, re- if you, as you reflect on what happens to David, um, he encounters different challenges in his life. And what you'll notice is up until Second Samuel chapter 11, David always ends up being on top. He always makes it out okay and unscathed, and he tends to have this unwavering faithfulness towards God. And it kind of climaxes at Second Samuel chapter 11, and here there's this story that takes place, and um, it kind of makes you 
realize just how human uh, people can be, even if they are chosen by God to do amazing things. So if you're there in Second Samuel chapter 11, the Bible introduces this part of David's life by saying in verse 1, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, uh, but David remained in Jerusalem. And Reba is the uh, capital city of uh, the people of Ammon. And as the text here indicates, it's springtime. And it's during this time that, the, that traditionally the kings go out for battle. Now, there are particular reasons why the springtime was um, an ideal place for battle to take place. One, winter has just passed, and generally uh, in, the, in the fertile crescent where Israel is located, uh, it rained quite a bit in the wintertime. And so the roads were quite muddy, and it wasn't ideal to move large groups of people and, and fight wars. And so once spring came around, the roads tended to harden up, and it was easy to become more mobile. Not only that, it's during the springtime that uh, food is more abundant. And so uh, the harvest would take place and they could actually feed their armies and then kings would go out and they would traditionally battle during this time. Now, the narrative states that at the time when David should have been fighting, he chooses to stay back and he sends his army general Joab instead of him instead of himself. And there's a bit of a uniqueness to this story because it's at this time when King David should be defending his subjects, he actually abuses them or he abuses, yeah, well, he abuses more than one of them. So we move, we move on to verse 2 and here's what happens. When David should have been fighting, he stays back and in verse 2 it says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And if you look at this verse, there is this progression that takes place in, in David's mind. It says, first, he sees this beautiful woman, and then he beholds her. He actually looks, and he takes in the beauty of Bathsheba. Um, I don't know. I'm curious. Have any of you been to Science Works? All right. There's this... Uh, optical test and you can kind of test how acute your vision is and it tests your peripheral vision specifically and so you put your chin on this table and uh, basically they have these blinking lights that surround your head from 90 degrees onward and basically you push the start button and what happens is the lights begin to flicker on and then you push the button again when you can actually see the light okay and basically it tells you how good your peripheral vision is um so it starts at 90 degrees, and my vision, I can see up to 80 degrees of around my, around my, if I'm looking straight, I can see 80, 80 degrees and forward. And basically this just, this uh, exercise is interesting to me in that your body, without you con- being conscious of it, takes in a lot of information, or your eyes take in a lot of information. And here in this story, it says that David saw Bathsheba. And there's nothing wrong with seeing anybody because your eyes are quite incredible and you see a lot. But then the verse takes that one step further and it says, he beheld her. Now that's a conscious decision that David makes to look and just be a creeper basically, right? And so in verse 2, it calls David out. Now we move on to verse 3. 
It says, And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. So verse 3 talks about how David inquires about this woman. And verse 4 states, he finds out that she has just passed her cycle. And uh, basically there's a period of time when a woman is not fertile. So she has just passed her cycle. And there's a period of time when the... Um, this is so weird that I'm talking about this stuff. My wife should have been the one sharing this sermon today. <laughs> anyway, and then uh, an egg is released, and it takes time for that egg to be fertile, right? And so David is doing a bit of calculating, and he's talking with Bathsheba, and he finds out, hey, this is a great time to actually sin, right? And so David moves forward with Bathsheba, and he thinks, I'm going to get away with this. This is going to be great. And you look on in verse 5, and David receives a message from Bathsheba, and she says, I am pregnant. Now, there are a few things that lead to David's immoral decision that I think are worth highlighting. And I've, I've highlighted them already, but uh, just for the sake of review. David has a duty that he avoids. And if there's ever a time when temptation comes very strong, uh, it's the time when one should be doing something and chooses not to do it. I don't know about you guys, but there is the strongest temptation to uh, flick through YouTube, especially when I've got some homework that I need to do, especially at uni. It's like I've got a task that I need to do, and the body just naturally responds by not wanting to do it, and then you fill it with all sorts of other stuff. And then at the end of the day, you're like, why did I just waste my life on that? This is exactly what happens to David to a very extreme degree. Secondly, he looks and then admires when he should have looked away. And there's this human response where you catch something and you, in your mind, you know, look away and David chooses, no, I will not. Thirdly, he researches to learn more, even more about this desire that he has. And whenever someone looks deeper into it, it doesn't repel the individual. There, there's this tendency of drawing a person to that, uh, to that action or to that sin. And then fourthly, David makes plans to sin and not to get caught, and yet um, God knows better. Now, it's at this time in the story where David realizes him and Bathsheba have this problem. They have a baby that's on the way, and David is in the kingdom, and basically the text kind of implies that everybody has gone out to war, so all the men are away. And so if there's this woman here and she gets pregnant people are kind of going to know that something has happened. And so what David does is he gets an idea and he calls back Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And he says, Uriah, come back from battle. I need you to report to me what has taken place thus far. And so David kind of uses this good, responsible reason, uh, excuse to bring her husband back. And he's like, tell me what's going on on the battlefield. But really, he's using that just as a disguise to kind of get Uriah drunk so that he'll go back to his wife and perhaps he can kind of slough off the baby inside of Bathsheba as Uriah's instead of his own. Now, if you just skim along, and I'm just going to narrate to you some things. Uh, so from verse 6 onward, and um, 
if you read from verse 6 to verse 14, and I'm just going to narrate some of these things. Now what happens is, David gets Uriah drunk, he invites him for a meal, and he tells Uriah, go back to your home, spend the night with your wife. And what happens is that Uriah refuses to go to the comforts of his home. And what he says is, I cannot go home when my comrades are fighting in battle, sleeping on uncomfortable floors while I go and comfort myself and lay with my wife. And he basically, you really get a sense of Uriah's character, and he says, I cannot do this thing. Now, it's in this portion of the story that the author of Second Samuel really contrasts David and Uriah. Here's what I mean. It contrasts Uriah's faithfulness in his duty as a soldier with David's unfaithfulness as a king. It contrasts Uriah the Hittite, who is a foreigner in Israel, whose loyalty is unshaken to the king, and yet David, who is the Israelite, has, is practicing treachery to his loyal officer. It shows Uriah's righteousness in his drunkenness, versus David's wickedness in his sobriety. And there's this bit of contrast between these two characters. And what ends up happening is David's original plan fails when he says, Uriah, go spend time with your wife. And as a result, he instructs his general. Um, and he actually puts this message in Uriah's hand. He says, listen, I've got some instructions that you need to take to your general. And it's basically Uriah's death sentence. And what David instructs uh, Joab, his general, to do is, he says, send Uriah to the thickest, hottest part of the battle where there's, where there's the greatest danger. And once Uriah engages the enemy, you have everybody else withdraw from the fight and Uriah is going to die. And that's exactly what happens. Now David probably thinks, alright, I've taken care of the problem and everything is okay. And to David, he just thinks, if I can get away with it, everything is going to be all right. My brother, and hopefully he doesn't listen to this recording, because I didn't ask him for permission to share this story, but he'll be all right because he's my brother and he'll forgive me. Now, growing up, uh, when I first had my license, uh, I had specific driving habits. And I would share those habits with my brother. And he would say, Roy, as long as you don't get caught, it's okay. So as long as you don't get caught, it's legal. And of course he was joking, but I took it to heart. And so <laughs> some of those habits are sticking with me today. And in Victoria, they have safety cameras and you can't really do that anymore. Anyway, so um, I'm learning what I should have learned back then today. And what happens is uh, God sends this messenger, Nathan, to go rebuke David. And what David thinks is a hidden secret, secret becomes... And open uh, becomes open knowledge. So, if you turn to Second Samuel chapter twelve, it introduces Nathan the prophet, and he comes to David and he gives this story about how there is a wealthy man who has much, uh, who who owns much, and then there's a poor man who owns nothing but a little lamb, and the rich man comes, steals the poor man's lamb kills the lamb and feeds it to a visitor. And Nathan the prophet is telling David this story because he is asking David, what do you think should be done? And as most of you know the story, David decides he thinks that there should be some divine judgment or divine justice that takes place. 
And uh, as you know, Nathan says, this man is you. You are the rich man who took from the poor man. And because this injustice has taken place, and then Nathan pronounces this judgment. And I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on this. So if you skim down to verse 14, Nathan is now giving judgment to David. And uh, actually, we'll go verse 13. Notice how David responds. David realizes that he has committed this grievous sin. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And so when David hears this, there's kind of this moment of relief. Like, whew, like I thought my life was going to be over. Because if you think about what David does, he lies. He sleeps with another man's wife. He murders the man. And especially as someone who's in a position of, of leadership and a position of authority, there's a lot more that that's added to that story than if somebody just did that to a fellow human. If a king does that, he is completely abusing the powers that have been given to him. And in this context, that power has been given to him by God. And so there's even more responsibility that's laid upon David. And so David hears this, and Nathan says, you are not going to die. Now notice what happens. Uh, notice as the judgment continues on. Verse 15. Uh, He says, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So at this point in time, Uriah, Bathsheba's previous husband, is already dead. And so in David's mind, he's thinking, there's an appropriate time for grieving, and then I'll bring Bathsheba to my home. We'll get married, the baby will be born, and everything is okay. And Nathan the prophet comes and he says, that baby that you guys have is going to perish. And if you read the very next verse, it says, uh, David pleaded with God for the child. Or excuse me, verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights laying in sackcloth on the ground, and what eventually happens is the baby perishes. And this story is very unique because there's an instance where the text specifically says the Lord strikes this baby with an illness and the baby dies. Now there are certain times in the Bible where you look up a specific verb and what ends up happening is Hebrew verbs can take different tones. Um, In the English language, if you change the intensity of a verb, you change the whole word. But in the Hebrew language, you don't actually change the word. The word stays the same, and you have different grammatical pointings that take place. And the translator has to figure out the intensity of this verb actually is different. Um, So there are some times where where a text might say, God sent. Like, for example, Numbers 21, which we have talked about in the past. God sent fiery serpents. And you might think, well, God sent fiery serpents, and they killed Israel. But if you look at the verb, that verb... The intensity is changed, and the accurate translation should be God freed the serpents, and they went and they bit Israel. And so there's a difference between God sending and God holding in, uh, holding the serpents in prison and then just walking away because Israel says, God, we don't want you here. God says, okay, and he walks away. And that's a more accurate interpretation. Now, in this particular sense, it says that the Lord, um, it says that the Lord struck the child. Now, if you look at the translation, it actually means 
the Lord struck the child. There's no way around that translation. It's God um, pronounced judgment, and this innocent baby became a recipient of uh, basically David's mistake. And so as somebody who's reading through this story, the question comes to my mind, why does the baby suffer for David's mistake? I mean, you have this innocent child. He hasn't even lived life yet. And then you have his illegitimate dad who basically can't control himself, kills the baby's real father, and then kind of steals his real mother. And there's this kind of almost uh, just disturbing scenario. And so... Um, when I thought about this, it kind of made me think about God's judgment. Um, there are times where you ask yourself the question, God, why do you judge the way that you judge? And why does your, why is your wrath shown in the way that it is? And so, uh, there are a few verses that I want to share with you and a few different perspectives on God's wrath in God's judgment. And uh, what, what will end up happening is as we discuss this in our, in our, um, in our roundtable time, um, yeah, I hope that we can really dig deeper on this. So there are two, uh, there are two ways of, pro- of approaching this. And historically, there are individuals who take a specific assumption. I'll share this with you. The first assumption is God's wrath against sin is an active, violent infliction of death towards or on the sinner. And so what happens is you have David who sins, and generally David should have been punished, but in this story David is given mercy, and instead his son is punished, and there's an active punishing that takes place. Here's a second option, that God's wrath is a passive type of a wrath. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this is in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles and you've got uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, Acts, and then there's Romans. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, it specifically uses that word wrath. And so if you're at Romans chapter 1 and you look at verse 18, it starts the verse off by saying, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So here clearly states God's wrath. And the question is, okay, God's wrath exists. How is it executed? You move on to verse 24. Notice it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, and then it continues on. And so what's portrayed here is that uh, there are people who are going to become recipients of God's wrath. And the way that it's revealed is God says, you do whatever you want, and the consequences of your actions will fall upon you. And he just kind of steps away. So it's more of a passive type of a, a response to uh, to sin. And so... For example, if you go to Matthew chapter 7 verse 23. Matthew chapter 7 verse 23. It's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7 and we're looking at verse 23. It says, and this is talking about Jesus' judgment to others. It says, uh, and this is his response to the disobedient. He says, then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So rather than God's active judgment and active punishment, uh, basically the wrath of God that's portrayed is just this separation from God. And he tells them, you go away from me. And so there are kind of these different views that people have of God's judgment. And what I want to uh, share with you um, as I as I talk about uh, this judgment and this wrath is that um, outside of what happened to Jesus on the cross, I don't know if we can fully understand God's judgment and his wrath. And in terms of this argument over active versus passive, um, I've been reading a bit about it. And actually, I don't know if there's such a clear answer, but we're just going to look at what happens to Jesus. And uh, as we discuss, we'll kind of discover uh, more together. But um, yeah, I want to share a couple aspects of God's wrath as we uh, continue on in this uh, discussion. The first one is, if you can go to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, it talks about the wrath of God, or the judgment of God. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. And in the second half of this verse, it says, He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. And it's in reference to God's judgment or uh, executing some kind of punishment. And whenever you look at the character of God in the Bible, his primary principle, uh, the primary principle by which he operates is love. And the Bible says repeatedly in different places that God is love. And so what happens is every now and then you see God interacting with uh, humanity and we have this problem of sin. And because of sin in the world, uh, God's response to sin is this strange act of wrath or judgment or punishment. So that's the first thing to consider. God's primary way of responding is love and secondarily, he has this strange act that he's not even used to, um, and it's called wrath. Secondarily, if you can go to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. And it uses, this text uses two opposing words that I find are kind of interesting, especially, and in this context, God is telling us to do both. And Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And so here in this verse, Paul tells us and exhorts us and admonishes us to both love and hate at the same time. Well, how can you love and hate at the same time when the two are completely opposite? Uh, the two have completely opposite characteristics. And so uh, Paul is kind of telling us there are times where God is, God is love. He loves so much. And at the same time, he hates sin with this uh, great passion, if you will. And if you think about the cross, you see Jesus on the cross dying for our sins, communicating, I love you greatly. 
And at the same time, you see exactly what sin does when it's complete uh, in somebody's life. And Jesus um, is a very healthy individual. Sometimes you see these pictures of Jesus and he's very skinny and he has no strength or anything like that. But this guy was a carpenter for 30 years uh, before he started his ministry. And back then they didn't have power tools, right? I mean, power tools consisted of this. And so he, he was he was a fairly fit individual. And so you see Jesus on the cross, and yet he's completely dying. And uh, in the in the story of the uh, of the crucifixion, you see the Roman soldier going to uh, the different thieves, and they're still alive. And so they have to break their legs in order for them to uh, basically they're not able to support themselves with their legs anymore, and they basically suffocate and they die. And so in the case of Jesus, they come to him, and he's already dead. And so you see this very fit, strong individual, and yet sin has completely destroyed him. And what's even uh, more of a mystery is that Jesus is God. And when I think of God, I think of words like omnipotent, powerful, eternal, nothing can phase God. And yet on the cross, sin kills him. And so you see the enormity and how powerful sin really is, and you see it completely kill Jesus, and you see, you get a little picture of what goes on in God's heart when Jesus is crying out from the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? There's this degree of separation that has taken place uh, where Jesus feels a separation of the presence of God. And God is showing his abhorrence for sin. And we get just like a tiny picture of what that's like. Now here's the question. Is it active or is it passive judgment from God? Is God, uh, did sin just kill Jesus itself, or is there something more to it? And if you read through Matthew, there are certain times where the text says that God delivered Jesus to the Pharisees, or God delivered him up to be beaten. And you see this word delivered being repeatedly used. And what I find as I'm reading through this story is that there is both active and passive elements of God's judgment. Like, if we practice disobedience and sinfulness in our lives regularly, the natural result is going to be, well, we get hurt. And at the same time, there are moments when actually God intervenes and he actually produces judgment. And I don't know if there's a clear-cut distinction of God is always passive or God is always active. And basically for me, it kind of instills the knowledge that, well, God truly is God. He can't be bound in our uh, nice ideas of who he ought to be, and sometimes he is just God. And so there, there is this, uh, yeah, there's this uniqueness to God's judgment that almost reveals the characteristics of, of, of the divine. Back to the story. So God lets David free, and at the same time, David's son dies. And there are two views to what happens in the story. One view is this. The baby was a substitution for David. In other words, what should have happened to David happened to the baby. One could look at it that way. Another way of looking at the story is that the baby was a foretelling of what another innocent individual would take on. What ends up happening is you have this innocent child who has yet to experience life gets struck by illness, and dies. And what would happen is, thousands of years into the future, Jesus would come in the form of a baby boy. 
he would live a perfect sinless life, be absolutely pure, and yet he would suffer the consequences of the end of sin in his own life, and it would absolutely kill him. And I almost think that the author of Second Samuel puts this story in, and, and God actually uh, does this to kind of show us this is the power of sin. If you continue to look at this story, there's kind of this interesting anomaly that takes place. After the baby has died, David goes in to comfort uh, comfort his wife. If you go back to Second Samuel chapter 12, Second Samuel chapter 12, what happens is David finds out that the baby has died. And in verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And this is almost like an absolute opposite of what has just taken place. You have David's previous son who gets stricken with illness. And then the very next son, the text says that the Lord loved him. And you keep reading verse 25. It says, And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. So actually Solomon had two names. His name was Solomon, and it was Jedidiah. <laughs> How many of you guys knew that? That was kind of new for me as, as I was reading through this. And there is this reinforcement of God's love mixed in with God's judgment. And as I as I reflect on the story, um, actually one other thing before I conclude here. In David's life, this one act of him taking Bathsheba to himself completely changes the rest of his life. I mean, it leads to multiple deaths in his family. He has uh, lots of sons and daughters because he has more than one wife. And the, the story reveals that one son uh, rapes one of his daughters and then that daughter's brother goes and kills that other brother and then David kind of runs a risk of almost losing his kingdom as these family problems continue to escalate. And for me, it's kind of this incredible um, story of God giving forgiveness and at the same time, uh, God's forgiveness doesn't wipe out the effects of David's uh, mistake. And so in conclusion... Uh, there are there are a couple things that stick out to me. One, this story is here in the Bible to warn us of the wickedness of sin and its effects. Uh, sometimes we kind of feel that, look, I'm just going to live my life the way that I want to and everything will be okay afterwards. And sometimes God's mercy is there and he allows us to really completely recover from what we've gone through. And in other times, there are serious implications to what takes place. I mean, David kept his life, and his son Solomon was able to become the next heir to the throne. And at the same time, he loses so many of his children. And basically, his name has this, uh, he's got a tarnished reputation in the Bible um, in this in this particular instance. And so in that sense, he isn't completely able to recover. And so, yeah, the story warns us of the wickedness of sin and its effects. The story also tells us a little bit about God's judgment. Um, and it, ta- it talks about how God fulfills the requirements of his own judgment in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so um, 
I end this message with a few questions and statements. Are you tempted? There is a consequence for sin. Have you already fallen? There is hope in Jesus Christ. And I hope as you meditate upon these things and as you think about how God interacts with us that, um, yeah, it just kind of makes you reflect upon what you're going through in your life currently. And, um, yeah, I kind of wondered what what David would have done if he would have looked back on his life. I wonder if he would have made different decisions. And the benefit is that we can look at David's life and we can choose how we're going to live our lives. And so as you think about this uh, sombering story or sobering story that, uh, yeah, that it would be a blessing for you in a strange way. So may God bless you. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm Lorraine, and um, this is Janine. And we're going to sing a song called Calvary. It's actually a song that my friend Janine wrote. Yeah, thank you. She doesn't like it when I tell people that. Anyways, um, it's actually a song about, um, it's based on the cross. And when she shared the song with me, I felt like I was sitting at the cross and I got to watch it all. And then when, you know, when it all goes down, you actually stand up and you stand up with purpose steps like you actually stand up and you're like okay so what do I do now and it gives you purpose because you realize what Christ has done for you so please listen to the words and I hope you're blessed Take one last glass.
for that wonderful special item. And um, I actually saw one of you on Facebook. There's like a video of like a special music or like a, uh, yeah, there's, you have an album coming out, right? Hey, that's exciting. Let's pray together. Father God, as we think about Calvary, as we think about your grace, your mercy, also your justice, uh, we are reminded of this fact that um yeah, that you deeply care and you deeply you have deep compassion at the same time. There is this abhorrence for, for sin. And I pray that um, in your justice that uh, we would also see just how, um, how good you are and how evil sin really is. And as we discuss, we pray that you would uh, bless our discussion time. We pray, in this, we pray this in your name. Amen.